This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. It's about design, electronics, software, networks, materials, and the horizons of technology, like synthetic biology. For more information on The Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. All right, so this week, let's go to the conversation with Julia Coe. Yeah, Julia spoke at Solid in June of this year, and she's the co-founder of SurePod, which makes a simplified mobile phone and emergency transponder for the elderly. It's a pretty awesome product because although it contains the guts of a normal mobile phone, its form factor has been designed in such a way to make it really, really easy for someone to get emergency help if they need it. Now, David, since you and I recorded this episode about a month ago, we've talked about it a lot because a lot of the hardware startup founders that we speak with are hardware enthusiasts first. They've created a prototype in their basement, or they've identified a technical problem that they want to work on, and now their challenge is to market it. But Julia is really coming at it from the opposite direction. She's a business person first, and she's figured out how to do the hardware in order to fulfill her business plan. Yeah, hearing her story was really interesting. Let's go to the tape. Tell us about um, SurePod and, and what it is and where it's been and where it's going. So SurePod is basically a mini cell phone for the down market, uh, specifically seniors here in the States. And it started um, with looking at what are some niche areas that uh, folks aren't servicing. And so we found that within telecom and the phone space, people weren't really servicing seniors who had different needs. Um, the learning curve for them on smartphones was significant, so we wanted to decrease the learning curve on that. And so we actually visited senior homes and asked the end users, what is it that you need? What is it that you find difficult about smartphones? And they said that it was complicated, and what they really wanted was something tactile, that they could just simply call a handful of people. And they wanted a backup because they, you know, when you age, your needs change and your phase of life is different. So they wanted to have a safety net because often their adult children were away from them and they were left alone. So we provided a service where people could press a button and anywhere there was uh, mobile coverage, they could dial into the call center and this, this five diamond call center would then have their profile and pull up all of their information and triage the situation. So the device itself does not look like a, a traditional mobile phone as we know it, right? It's like a it's like a small plastic box with just like five buttons on it with pre pre programmed phone numbers and a speaker and a microphone. Yeah, that's right. So uh, some folks have paralleled it to a pager, and it's tiny. It fits in your pocket. It's mm -hmm. discreet. The whole purpose is that you don't want to wear a cowbell. You want it to be discreet, and uh, seniors would wear it under their shirt or in their pocket, or hang it on their belt. Um, so it, so like you said, uh, David, people usually think of phones as being a smartphone or very large, but in fact, as long as it has a GSM chip or a GPS chip with it in this case, it is a phone. It's a feature phone. So the, what, what's really fascinating about this is in the, in the previous interview that we were just recording, Renee DiResta was telling us about how one of the biggest, um, pitfalls for hardware startups is that they they assume the market is made up of people exactly like the founders, right? We, we always like assume that the market consists of people like ourselves. So we design things that we would enjoy using. You guys set out to design from the beginning a product for people who are not like yourselves. That's right. You're not a senior yourself. Not uh, yet. You probably enjoy using like a, a fully featured 
smartphone. I, I enjoy using a mini computer in the palm of my hand. Yeah, <laughs> connected to the knowledge of the world. Right. So how did you how do you even start going about developing this product for people whose preferences and use cases are just completely different from your own? Well, you really put yourself in the shoes of the end user and you ask yourself, what is it like to be a senior in the States? Um, how do you look at the world? What are your needs? So instead of thinking about yourself, you think about someone else and their perspective and their experiences and you talk to them and you ask them, what do they need? Um, you ask them, what is it that they want? Because you have to separate out their needs from their wants. Um, and then you go about looking at how can that be articulated in a feature set. Mm -hmm. It seems common sense that yeah, yeah. if you're going to design for an end consumer group, you, you don't design for yourself. You design right. for who those people are and really looking at how do they think, how do they live their lives, how can they improve their quality of life. So it's, it's just it's, it's really interesting because you're not, you know, you're not able to do this intuitively in terms of saying like, would I enjoy pulling out this phone and, and, and doing this? You're, you're doing it entirely on the basis of a careful user research process. Part of it's intuitive. Um, if you think about if you are, if you're 65 or you're, if you're 75 years old, you know that, um, you, you intuitively know that you're, you're, you're not as fully functional. So that, that part is intuitive and, and it really comes from the heart. Mm -hmm. um, the part where it's it's a little more research based is that you have to confirm your assumptions, and mm -hmm. that's where you go out to the end user and you ask them, "Are these assumptions correct?" Mm -hmm. okay. And so this was a process of of not only kind of surveying at the beginning, like talking with a lot of seniors and asking them about their needs, but also, I assume you went through this with a million different prototypes as well. <laughs> No, actually, we went through with just a couple of prototypes. Mm. And so the first prototype was quite a bit larger. It was egg-shaped. Um, and one of the reasons we did that is because hardware has a lot of uh, challenges where if it's small, it, it doesn't perform as well. Mm. And what we learned from the end users is that they wanted it as small as possible. Mm. So when we had this egg-shaped, larger piece of device, they felt less confident to take it out or mm. purchase it or buy it hmm. so so what was your actual process for developing the the hardware piece look like like once you had the idea for making this this new type of phone essentially like what did you actually have to go through in order to to get it made so we started here with drawing out some designs and then taking it over to Senzen. And I connected with a number of engineers overseas, hardware, electrical, uh, firmware. And what I found was that because I speak fluent Mandarin, um, I was able to ask them, can you bring your friends along in the process? And that made things a lot easier um, because human resources is... It, Having the cap, the human capital to make it was one of the biggest challenges. And that was fairly more or less easily solved by asking the right people, can you bring your friends with you? And what factories are you plugged into? What network are you plugged into? Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it, and you know, I, I have to admit honestly that because I spoke Mandarin, I understood the culture, mm -hmm. um, that that made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So I was able to say, this is the design. Can you make the board? And can you price out the chips? And can you ask uh, Konka what the chips would cost, what the board would cost uh, at this particular quantity? Mm -hmm. So so did you just engage them as, as like contractors or were they actually, the, the, the partners in Shenzhen, were they actually working 
full-time for your company? It or? was a combination of both. Mm-hmm. So some of them started out as contractors and then we ended up paying them full-time to yeah. finish the product. Because it seems like a lot of product development that takes place in Shenzhen is like very dynamically allocated and like people going back and forth between lots of different projects and like helping each other out with different things. Was that your experience or did you not have that experience? We had that experience at first <laughs> yeah. and then through negotiations, I asked them to You're able be, to lock it down yes, more? Yes, lock it mm. down. Like if you're going to do this, you, you got to like commit. Yeah. You got to have skin, skin in the game. So Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so one of my other questions actually is this is effectively a mobile phone um, of a very specific form factor that's for a very specific subset of people. And I'm interested to know, it seems like, you know, there's many different classifications of of user groups of people who might want to use a mobile phone, but most people only have an Apple device or like a Samsung device or an Android device or whatever. Why do you think that there's not as many phones with widely varying feature sets and and form factors on the the market over here, like in the US? Like, you know, I go to Shenzhen and like go and see all the phones they have all over the place and they have like you know, different things with TV tuners built in and like big phones and small phones and like very, very, very different. You know, it's made by many different brands for many different people with many different desired use cases. Like, why do you think that there aren't any startups in the U.S. thinking about making mobile phones? Why is everyone making accessories and not the actual device itself? Well, making phones is extremely hard, as I've come to learn. Uh, <laughs> Technologically, you mean? Uh, supply chain wise. Huh. So if a startup here wants to make a phone overseas, they really have to tap into the supply chain network. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it sets in Shenzhen or Taiwan or, or, or Japan. So part of it is just the ecosystem is not here. It does not support startups making mobile phones. And the second is the demand for specific type of phones. People here are relatively educated. They're going to want access to a computer mini computer in the palm of their hand. They want access to information. So a feature phone that maybe is shaped like a frog or a skull is, <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't fit their needs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the skull one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, mean, well, I mean, like beyond, beyond the ones that are like funny shapes, but like, it seems like you could take that, you know, the idea of like, okay, we can make a funny shape of a phone, but then you start thinking more and more about, you know, maybe there's a type of phone that like, I want it to be really small and and just a feature phone that I keep in my pocket for when I go skiing. You know, like maybe it's a phone for a senior citizen. Yeah, that that only has like five buttons on it, or you know, something that's just for the like. It just seems like you could you could blow it all out to much more specific use cases, and the hardware is so inexpensive that it seems like that would be a thing that that people would want. But everyone seems to be really focused on convergence devices at the minute. Um, What did you think about the like the you know, sort of interfacing with actually being able to get a phone to connect to our existing telecom and cellular networks. Like, what was that process like? That process was very enlightening. And um, it also presented a lot of challenges because there are only four operators here in the States. And um, the smallest one being T-Mobile. And uh, so we started with the smallest one because we knew with the smallest one, they would give better terms and they would be easier Mm -hmm. to negotiate with. And the interesting thing is we started out with the enterprise group instead of the consumer group. Hmm. And the enterprise group was a little bit more flexible in their deal terms. Um, and so they we, we started out with the pricing and the pricing was atrocious. And hmm. part of it was that I treated it as, as utility. So mm-hmm. everybody has a right to electricity and gas. Mm-hmm. Well, why we should have a right to, uh, to connectivity. connectivity. 
So I treated it as utility. I said, look, guys, these prices are ridiculous. I don't understand. You are utility. Why are you charging five, six X more than mm -hmm. electricity or gas? There's absolutely no reason. And so we kind of went back and forth. And, and you know, I, I really held my ground on that point. Um, so they gave in a bit. And so we discovered the real pricing of mm. what it is per minute. The per, real pricing of bandwidth. You of mean, bandwidth uh -huh. for voice and also for text. And it is ridiculously low. It really? is very, very affordable. What, what is the real price? What is the, 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 the basement price? The, base, on, the on basement price uh, for text per text can get down to 0. 0.0002. And the, cents per text. Yeah. So that's a point. So that's that's two thousandths of a penny, of a per, penny text. per text. Yes. And so wow. with data, it can get down to point zero 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 one two one three, depending upon the amount of data used. Um, per megabyte. Yes. Oh. Wow. It's way less than way less than I pay when I yeah. accidentally use my phone in Canada or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yeah. They're 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 just they're 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 gouging you. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's like because it's like I mean there there is a huge infrastructure, but it's it's only owned by the same four companies. So right. if you want to connect something to the network, you have to like get them to give the blessing. It's not like if you want to connect to a Wi-Fi hotspot down at your local coffee shop and what the network's unlocked and you can just like connect to it like you actually have to like do a pretty serious deal with one of these big four companies to even let you connect your thing using their network that's everywhere hmm. well they were a little more flexible on i yeah. think part of it is they bought into the vision where we're servicing the snitch market and they said okay yeah there is a need for it and we can make money off of it so they became a little bit easier i mean it, it, you know I, I think on one of the slides i mentioned that making hardware is effectively a social exercise and it's true because Machines don't operate themselves. People operate the machines. So mm. there are there are people that you need to talk to and you need their buy-in for in order to make things happen. So same way with making hardware and working with telecom. There are people uh, behind the desk that are basically signing off on it or, or, or denying it. So you need the buy-in of the people. And that's that's fundamentally what, what we a, had to do with telecom. This is a big difference between developing software and developing hardware, I think, because I think in developing hardware, you have to do a lot more dealings with, with real people and like getting people to actually buy into it. You can't just clone the repository and compile it and have it be okay. Like getting the getting the buy-in from the people is, is important. Yeah, I mean, it even is. in the most fluid distribution scheme imaginable, you're still having like a conference call with someone at Best Buy, right? Yeah, or right. or T-Mobile or, or Amazon or something. Yeah. So for your device, did you... Do people have to have a subscription to like it a is subscription, subscription based? And so we were a little more flexible on the hardware. We could have made the hardware in California. And that's something that my co-founder and I were going back and forth on. Steve mm. really wanted to do it in California for quality purposes. Um, and, I, you know, I said, well, I speak Mandarin. Why don't we just go overseas and I'll just camp out there mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and we can at least make off of the hardware. So the subscription uh, is a rev share with medical alarm dealers. This is a value huh. add sale they already have sold something to the end user and so there's trust already and so the the dealer can make up to $18 per month wow. per device and so, so people are subscribing about a year on average before okay. they either kick off or and, and what is the subscription cost to the end user the, the the end user cost is 
it can range. So we actually let the dealer decide the threshold, but it, it normally ranges from thirty nine ninety nine up to about seventy four ninety nine. Interesting. So this was I was about to ask why uh, why you had approached T Mobile through their enterprise group instead of the consumer group. So this isn't something that that's because you're using this distribution model. It's not something you'd find in a T Mobile store. No, it's not a subsidized handset in the way that uh, that that usually happens. That's right. So. Um, the reason why we went through the enterprise group is because they wanted sales. Mm. And that's the bottom line. I mean, you go where they want sales. And if you have to start with enterprise and move over to consumer, that's fine. They are all at, they're at the same company. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, you make your way over to consumer. But the enterprise group gave us the time of day. And mm -hmm. um, so the, the interesting thing about T-Mobile was that at the time, so as you know, all of the, the networks require certain chips that mm -hmm. you have to that that are permitted on their network, um, and you and it's understandable because they spent billions on their network. But T-Mobile is a little more flexible in that they said as long as you pay us, you can get on the network up to a certain threshold where nobody will really notice that it's it's not necessarily. Uh, on our list of chips that we like. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It doesn't really hurt their network, you know, <coughs> unless you're doing significant scale. Sure, it's not sure, really sure. detectable. So T-Mobile was having a layoff of 800 people. Um, and it, our the group that we had been working with was potentially in danger of losing their jobs. And so I, you know, I said to the, to the group, I said, you know, we will help you post this quarter if you can cut us a good deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's basically what we did. So we wow. wired them the money and they sent us the contract and the real pricing. And that's how we were able to get on their network uh, when we first started out. Did they keep their jobs? They did. Oh, yes. fantastic. Yeah. You, so you saved them. Uh, we helped. We, all, we helped out. Everyone uh -huh. saved each other. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> everyone was good to so each what other. So kind of, what kind of chipset did you end up going with for your... Conca. Conca had some chipset. Conca, okay. Yeah. But okay. that's not... So, so the... Yeah, I guess I did know. Yeah, the, so the, so the operators actually have a specified they do allowed list of chipsets that they right. allow and on their network. That's right, and they're expensive. Oh they're yeah, quite expensive. Yeah. Um, AT and T is very very strict about that. T Mobile mm. less so because T Mobile actually is uh, in some areas where they don't have very coverage switches over to the GSM AT and T network. Mm -hmm. So AT&T is a completely different beast. They have a lot of standards. They really have their act together mm -hmm. um, versus T-Mobile, less so. Yeah, They have less automated processes. Uh, my co-founder, Steve, actually went and built Amazon Turk to help them automate some processes. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a German company here in the US and they're mm -hmm. just, um, you know, they're, they're a little bit different. Well, they're making a lot of strong moves to try to get more subscribers away from other the contracts yeah yeah the contract stuff and then like pricing their they, they're always having sales on like if you sign up like a family plan like it's like super cheap yeah international uh connectivity is w way mm -hmm. cheaper with right. yeah i'm interested in knowing is when when are they going to start like telecom companies in general when are they just going to start billing you a flat rate per month or like you know counting everything as data because you know data and voice are really as soon as as soon as it goes into your phone, it gets turned into the same type of information, right? Like, why why are there so much delineation between data, voice, SMS? Like well, it started out with voice, and uh, data was very very expensive. There wasn't a whole lot of need for a ton of data up until more recently. So, data will be the new voice, mm -hmm. and voice will just fall by the wayside eventually. Yeah. So it's a matter of time uh, before they start charging data like they've been charging mm -hmm. voice and it, the price will definitely go down significantly. 
So, so we we love to talk about the IoT here at okay. Solid. And do you think that we'll eventually get to a point where people are building devices which just connect directly to the cellular network as opposed to having to go through Bluetooth or Wi-Fi? So there are a number of platforms being built currently that uh, the operators contract with. And what could potentially happen is a lot of people building gadgets, um, because it's a lot easier to build gadgets now, can just get onto that platform, which uh, they're effectively a distribution partner for the operators. Mm -hmm. Like Particle is, has an MVNO now, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so then you would just buy a SIM card from somebody like them, and then they've already cut a deal in the They've already in the cut a deal, yeah. With one of the, the main carriers. Right. The operators um, are more concerned about their network and less so about sales. Mm -hmm. So they have these sales partners, which are the MVNOs. Mm -hmm. So are you are you exclusively on T-Mobile now, or did you T-Mobile only. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So um, Sprint had some excellent pricing, excellent deals. They have a great technical support team, but they're CDMA, and uh -huh. the only people that use CDMA are here in the States. So uh, Verizon and Sprint are the two CDMA carriers, and then AT&T and T-Mobile are the GSM carriers, and the rest of the world uses GSM. Right. Well, so, that's, that's the real question is who, who's, who's the best mobile phone carrier? AT&T. AT&T AT really? by what By what metrics? By quality standards, by their technical expertise, by their footprint. Mm -hmm. Huh. You're, you're so, I'm, I'm astonished. You're so certain in, in saying that. Well, it's because it's their job. You, yeah, you have a lot of it's insight. Of, it's, no, I mean, that's that's like thunderous. Usually. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. T-Mobile is okay. I mean, they're they're cheaper, uh -huh, but uh -huh. you get what you pay for at the end of the day. Right, right, so, right. Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because you don't... Um, it's one of these things where people get into qualitative discussions about it, but without mm -hmm. really knowing much about it. Because, yeah. you, you know, you have a subscription through one service and not the other, and the switchover costs mm -hmm. are pretty high um so that's all arbitrary you know, anyway yeah, that's but. <laughs> totally arbitrary, absolutely but you know the uh but people don't have first-hand experience of like multiple networks next mm -hmm. to each other usually so i'm just i'm really impressed I, yeah. I i don't think i've ever spoken with someone uh where that question didn't turn that into question, a half an hour discussion yeah exactly <laughs> and and uh, so i'm yeah i'm impressed that you're able so, to be like at&t period, for technical and coverage reasons. Yeah, we, we've dealt with them for a good year and a half. The negotiations lasted a little bit over a year mm -hmm. with all four. And mm -hmm. you kind of have to pit them uh, you know, against one yeah, another. Yeah. Why do they charge so much for roaming internationally? Because they're switching on to a different network. And so they have to split the cost and the revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're actually they're paying, you know, Vodafone or Rogers or whatever. Right. Well, how is um, it that AT&T's international roaming is so ridiculously expensive and T-Mobile can give it to you as a benefit of your plan for It's just the deals that they cut. Yeah. yeah, the deals that they cut with other carriers uh, around the world. And also how much capital T-Mobile is willing to, to burn through to, to acquire customers. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, so T-Mobile is a bit more desperate yeah, than, yeah. than AT&T. So, so tell us about uh, the the... Um, your, your distribution, going through an existing sales network rather than going through a retail channel. Um, how did you decide to, to do that and what's your experience? It, it came down to costs per user, cost of acquisition. So if you go B2C, you're looking at uh, several hundred dollars per end user. And so you, you might lose money per user. If you look at, let's say, LifeAlert, for instance, they actually don't manufacture their own products. Hmm. There's actually one factory that manufactures all of the LifeAlerts, Lifeline products. And so the folks here have no control over the product overseas. And so we had actually had discussion with LifeAlert about making a product custom 
for them so that they have some control over the hardware because as it stands, they're really sales and marketing and uh -huh. they spend they spend several hundred dollars per end user. And so their margin, wow. just, just advertising, so their margins are fairly low. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we went B2B because it's cheaper uh -huh. and the channel's already there. So it's a value added sale. So, and, and what line of business are your salespeople already in? Medical alarm sales, oh, or it. they sell wheelchairs, or they sell medical equipment. Got it. So are some of them being sold through um, senior living uh, facilities? Homes, facilities and... No, no. Okay. It's so they're being sold direct to the Direct, to the right. So there's actually two people involved in the purchase. The first one is the adult child, because they're often paying for the service out of guilt. Mm -hmm. uh, the second <laughs> one is the end user who, who you actually have to convince that this is something that they need. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and uh, do you have like a life alert style function on the phone? Yes. Yes. It's on the end. I actually have it here with me. Yeah. I'd love do you to want me to go it. get it? Yeah, yeah oh, grab it. Grab it. We'll, we'll describe it as you take it out of, <laughs> out of the box. We're examining the phone now. It's in a white plastic case. Here we go. Injection molded. It's approximately two inches by three inches. Has a little um, uh, lanyard on it. That's, That's right. Uh, lanyard. So you can wear it around your neck. There's this, is not, this is not a phone for your pocket because... Why would you use your pockets if you're just you, hanging out in, in a... You could put it in your pocket if you're walking to the mailbox mm -hmm. and uh, there's nobody that drives by your neighborhood for a good day or so Yeah. and you need help, you can pull it out of your pocket. And so this is always on speakerphone? It's There's only speakerphone and it's at 70 decibels. Oh, that's so it's loud. really loud. Well, they, that's what they kept yeah, requesting. Yeah, yeah. Can you make <laughs> it louder? And then we have to go back in the firmware and make it louder. Uh -huh, and then uh -huh. you have to optimize for the echo because uh -huh. there's an echo because the, the mic is very close to the speaker and there's uh -huh. this echo loop, which we had do, to work around. How much of that do you do in hardware versus in software? That kind of engineering? It was all in software. Okay. Because okay. we were we had already made the hardware and yeah, yeah. it would be terribly expensive and it would cost us another year in development. So we just went through the firmware. Interesting. So what's your background? Tell us about how you came into this, this area. Well, let's see. I started uh, my first business, which was an Asian food manufacturing business in the Midwest when I was 19. And uh -huh. I did that because I didn't want to go to school. And so my dad said, it was about after three weeks of school. And I said, Dad, I really don't want to be in school. And he's like, well, you have to do something productive with your time. And I had made a trip out here uh, to the West Coast with my high school sweetheart at the time. And he was actually from this area. He lived, he grew up in Carmel and they moved to, you know, St. Louis um, when I think when he was in, in middle school. And so we came out here and visited his hometown. And, and I, you know, I saw San Francisco. I'm like, this is a great area. There's a lot of smart people here. There's the ocean. You have the mountains. It's all within a day's drive. There's lots you can do here. And I'm like, you know, I really want to live here. I, I don't want to live in, near the cornfields anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so I moved out here after I sold my first business uh, and went to UCLA and then came up here and said, you know, I, I think I'd like to get into the technology space. And I went to UCLA for art history. Okay. So has absolutely nothing to do with hardware. There's a massive learning curve. And that's where I really relied on people that had expertise and, uh -huh. and kind of took it from the perspective of it being a social exercise. There's always going to be people that know more or they're, you know, an expert in area. And that's perfectly fine as long as your visions align. And, and they're yeah. on board with you. But how do you find those people? Especially if you have an art history background and you don't even know what to look for. 
Well, I went online. I have relatives overseas in China,、mm. and I also ask them, "Can you help connect me with people?" And anytime I meet someone, I ask them, "Can you connect me with somebody in this particular area?" And、mm. so you just through the process of net- constant networking, you eventually come to the right person、um, for that particular situation.、Mm-hmm. So, what does your team look like as you're starting up the company? Kind of what distribution of skills? How did you expand? So,、um, so what I learned from my first business was that operations is my weak point. Okay. So I, I needed to find somebody that was good with operations.、Um, the other was I knew I, I wasn't. I didn't come from a technical background, although I started learning about technology and some of the basics on the hardware and and the software.、Um, so I knew that I needed to find someone that、uh, is very experienced with cloud. Um, and also the hardware piece as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So I went and targeted those specific people and talked to them and and said, "Here's the vision, and would you like to be a part of it?"、Uh, it it's basically it came down to that, and and I did that with my first business too, where uh-huh. Uh-huh. I went to a competitor and I said, "I I, I know that、um, you don't get paid as much as you would like."、Mm-hmm. Are you up for it if I give you some equity and I pay you more? But the condition is that you need to bring your operations manual with you, and so he did that,、um, and that really kind of helped us、uh, get a good solid start、wow. with Whole Foods Market. No kidding! So you sold into Whole Foods Market、so、Whole as a nineteen-year-old.、Uh, yeah, I was. I, I was. Yes, nineteen and a half. Wait, yeah. What's the brand?、Uh, Gaijin Kitchen. I'm, I'm fascinated by this by this switch. So,、um, did you go into hardware because? You wanted to to be in electronics and technology and like work on on this kind of stuff, or did you you know are you just sort of a a generalist entrepreneur and you saw an opportunity in the way that technology is sold to seniors,、um, the way that、uh, telephony subscriptions work, and kind of like went into it. It's that the、way. latter.、Uh-huh. I mean, I I don't you know it it started out with. The Asian food manufacturing business, partially because I saw the opportunity.、Um, so going back to coming out here in San Francisco, I saw that there was an Asian foods trend, and it was growing at the time. And、mm-hmm. all trends, all fashions start on the coast, and then they move inward.、Um, and so that you know, the Midwest is a little bit、uh, later adopter.、Mm-hmm. And so I saw that opportunity, and there was Whole Foods being built, and、uh, Straub's Market, Schnucks, and and the pitch to the Midwestern grocers was that we are local. Uh-huh. So uh-huh.、Uh, we're not out in LA. We're not out in New York City. We're local. So if you want to wring somebody's neck, you know my neck is right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so、uh, that that actually made a huge difference to the people there in the Midwest was having somebody local that they could really see either on a daily or weekly basis, and you'd have to go into the grocery store、uh-huh. um, pretty frequently for that. Wow. So what do you think? Do you Now you live out here in San Francisco. I,、uh, yeah, for sure. So, so what?、Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>、um, so now, now,、uh, now that you're out here, do you keep spotting trends, things that you're watching to, for to show up in the Midwest? Do you go back to St. Louis? No, and like do some arbitrage. No, no, not really. I, you know, I've been to Chicago a few times. I have some friends in Chicago,、uh-huh. um, but not so much. I, I maybe look a bit more outward globally、uh-huh. as to what's happening. And I mean, the amount of effort that you have to put in to make a piece of gadget is 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 huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, if you're going to put in that kind of effort, why not service a larger market if possible? Sure. So that's sure. that's. That's the difference. Do you sell this internationally? No,、Sherpod? no. We, we've had inquiries from Australia, from Eastern Europe, and we said no.、Um, mm. So Steve and I decided like we're going to focus on the U.S. only. 
Is, is part of it a matter of just having being daunted by negotiating new carrier contracts yes. in every country? Yes. I can't imagine that. That's, that. That's, that's, yeah, that's a real pain. Yeah. So, I mean, usually the EU collectively is like almost as good a market as the U.S. in a lot of, in a lot of cases, but not in this one because no. each country would require its own negotiation. Right. right? Yeah. It's not scalable. Yeah. It's just yeah. not scalable solution. Yeah. No. That's insane. It's very niche. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. And what are you looking at in the way of um, uh, product development now? Do you do you do a lot of revisions to this uh, to this design? Or? We yeah, we have done two revisions so far, and we have one revision that we should be pushing out later this year. Okay. Okay. So Julia, what would be helpful for people listening if they're interested in making hardware and want to get into telecom? That if you want to make hardware um, for the first few thousand, it's best to make it here in the states locally until you get significant scale and then you take it overseas because a lot of the issues that come up with people making gadgets right now is that this if without scale and supply chain it's a lot of bootstrapping you're gonna come across a lot of issues that are unnecessary versus if you make it here locally in smaller batches um, you're not going to have those quality issues and you're not going to have those headaches and time lags but you did all of your first manufacturing in China, right? Yes. Well, that's because that's you yeah. went and camped out in China right. and also and speak Mandarin. 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 Yeah. Yep. And so yep. can you can you walk us through the economics of what manufacturing in the U.S. would have entailed compared to what you ended up doing in China? If we had made it in L.A., uh, the costs would have, we would have broken even on the cost. So instead of this piece of hardware costing around $23 after a good six months negotiation and dealing with many different contractors, um, it would have cost around $100 if you made it in L.A. Wow. Because of the labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are very expensive here. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there a point that you could see, I mean, given the, the sort of inputs to that price, where if you're making it at just enormous volume, you could automate more of the process or maybe use a bigger CM or something that uh, domestic manufacturing could, could break even? Actually, yeah, we actually looked at that. What does it look like at scale? And uh, it, you might get a discount of $25, $30, but the labor costs and materials costs are just significant. Interesting. Yeah. And how much did you rely on the, the famous um, Shenzhen ecosystem? The, you know, the availability of just like this, all this expertise, the, the parts, the supply completely. chain set up completely. Like, completely. I mean, I, that's why I was there for a good month at a time and yeah. I just camped out there. So um yeah, there, there's an entire negotiation, and we probably could do another podcast on negotiating overseas in China, um, but it, you have to be there for at least two weeks at a time, and you yeah. have to put in the FaceTime, you have to socialize with the people, you have to go to dinner with the people, you have to do trips with the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to be immersed and go quote-unquote native hmm. if you want to truly tap and leverage the ecosystem there. You can't just like send some emails and and expect everything to get done. No, they'll laugh at you. Yeah, and they'll take <laughs> yeah. advantage of you. Yeah. <laughs> so so I I actually consulted with this VC here who invested in this uh, hardware startup, and the entrepreneur, as it turned out, after I chatted with him, because there were some things that just didn't make sense, and I'm like, what's going on? And it turns out that he didn't own the firmware. He had no access to the source code. No. Yeah, and and, and the, the VC didn't know this. Of course, he's terribly embarrassed yeah, yeah. after they did. So the yeah. entrepreneur just outsourced the the creation of the source code, and I don't even know if he did that. But the bottom line is that it was a handful of guys in in, in sitting in a room in Shenzhen that owned the source code and wow. the IP. 
And there were uh-huh. contractors, a handful of contractors sitting in a room. Yeah, in I don't, Shenzhen, yeah. owning the IP yeah. and the source code. Yeah, and he showed me the prices that, that they were charging him. And I was like, you can just slash $5 right off this, right off the bat. <laughs> I mean, this, per unit, this is ridiculous. And he's like, I can. Right, I'm like, right. yeah. He's like, but I have nowhere else to go. I'm like, well, still, you can just not place orders with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and their RMA percentage was, was going up to like 10%. It was like 5%, and going up to 10%. And I'm like, you just, and they were basically doing it over email. And they didn't mm-hmm. want to go overseas. I'm like, why don't you go overseas? Well, it's terrible. I hate it there. I hate the people there. I hate the entire system there. And I'm like, well, then why are you trying to work with them? Yeah, yeah. Because it's cheap, and, and the guy owns the and you know, and they own the source code. And yeah. you know, and I said, well, okay, nobody really likes it. It's a it's a harsh environment, but you're gonna need to like spend time there. Um, otherwise, they think that you don't have the grit to do right. it. They're not going to respect you. So for folks that are listening, go over there and stay over there. Don't go there for two days and then fly back and think that your product's going to be made at a decent price and that you're going to get a quality product because you won't. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, how would you feel if just like some rando who like speaks your language, who speaks English poorly, right. just like email comes out of the internet and just emails you randomly and is like, hey, can you help me make something? And like, you don't really know who this person is or like where it's coming from or what they want. Like, yeah. you're not you're not going to work very hard on it because it's they're almost like they're not you. like a real person. You know what I mean? Like, you have to like work with people that you know and, and that you can communicate with. Yeah, they're not going to trust you because they don't know if you have the funds to actually pay them uh, for this project that you want them to do. Mm-hmm. And, and since it is the electronic manufacturing capital world, Every single person from around the world shows up and sends in and asks something to get made. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people don't pay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these factories have invested their people, their equipment, uh, they or sometimes they've spent money and they don't get the project and they don't get paid. So they get screwed in the process too. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways. So first and foremost, develop trust with people there. To build, build your guanxi. Yeah, to build your guanxi. Everything is done uh, with guanxi. Mm-hmm. So how did, did you have to um, pay full manufacturing uh, costs up front before, before you received the goods? Or did, were you able to negotiate but some sort of invoicing? We, we negotiated uh, quite well. So um, we had several factories on the line mm-hmm. um, and we gave them small batches. Hmm. So they had to prove themselves constantly and, and keep That's the incredible. relationships warm, which is why yeah, you yeah. have to spend time there and really chat with them yeah. and talk with them. So these are factories working in parallel? Like sometimes, yeah, they would work in parallel and I would be running back and forth. And sometimes I would have them, I would have their, their factory car come pick me up at another factory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, That takes incredible discipline for a startup to, to, to do that, I feel like, right? I mean, that's, that's got to feel like it's, like it's a very sophisticated, large manufacturer thing to do to like set up several factories to work in parallel and, and be prepared for one to drop off and keep comparing them it's to each more other. work it's just more work it's you know work, it's yeah. if you have three or four five it's really five six x more work it's not three or four x more work and it really helped that my co-founder here steve took care of operations here he did all the cloud infrastructure a lot of the dealers he spoke mm-hmm. with frequently he actually enjoyed talking with the dealers and the dealers were very happy to have this opportunity because the margins were so good for them uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and then when I was here, I would deal with the telecom and Steve would also pitch in with the telecom when I was overseas yeah. mm-hmm. as well. So uh, we really divided up the work. Yeah. So when I was overseas, I, I You was, don't get anything else done. You don't get anything in, else yeah. done. You yeah. really kind of don't. Because you're hucking back and forth between, between factories the 
factories like meeting with people and and, and yeah 10 hours off on time zone and yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that too and so um Making it known to each factory that you have several other factories on the line um, keeps them keeps them well behaved. And it's much like dating, right? So if you're a gal dating, you want to date several people at a time and you be open about it. And so you pe- you see people's best behavior uh-huh, in that uh-huh. sense, right? Yeah. It keeps them it keeps them disciplined. It keeps them honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And and they have an inclination to be dishonest. Um, It's simply the the culture over there. And so I think from our perspective, it's like, well, you know, I'm being lied to. They're scammy. They, you know, they don't deliver things on time. It's and it's true. They are very much like that. Um, But their perspective is I'm going to see how much I can take home at the end of today, not what's going to happen tomorrow or the the following day. Tomorrow is very dependable in that environment. And you like offset that by like building, building relationships and building trust with people too. So they actually like want to work with you because they like you and because they trust you, not just because they see you as some foreigner who they're going to try to make a, as, a much quick money buck. As, as much money as possible off of. Right. In, in a very short amount of time. And I also had a, a couple investors that showed up too. Like they flew out to Sinzen. They wanted to see what it was like there. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you sure you really want to come out and and, and make a vacation of it? And like, yeah, they wanted to come out. So I, I lugged them with me to the factory too. And that but The factory guys love that, right? Like yes. that shows how serious that you right, are, right, right, right. Like, and they're like, well, here, here are some investors they've showed up. And and so I had one investor that was actually sweating profusely during the price negotiation. And, and before the, the folks sat down on the other end of the table, he's like, well, what should I do? I said, don't say anything. Just be quiet. Just just don't move. Just like nod a don't, little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah nod a little mm. bit. Don't yeah. flinch. <laughs> Because he's sweating and it's <laughs> yeah. like, don't flinch. And, and when they want to walk away, let them walk away. And so um, they actually did that. They actually said, really? okay, well, we can't hit that price. And I said, all right, that's fine. Here's your, here, here's your contract back. And then we sat there silently and, and I looked over and uh, he, he's sweating profusely. <laughs> uh, uh, but but they, they said, okay. And, uh-huh. and that was, they agreed to the pricing so that it, it helped to bring the investor along. It helped that he kept quiet and, and uh-huh. didn't move when, when he really wanted to flinch. And so then after that, I'm like, well, you know, what, did you want to grab dinner or what, what did you want to do? And he's like, well, I'm really tense right now. I'd like to get a massage. <laughs> yeah. So uh you, you can get great massages at very cheap prices there in Sinzen. And so he so I, I lugged him across town to this nice massage, very legitimate massage uh-huh. place and and you know they beat the hell out of him. And yeah. he kind of liked that. So uh <laughs> emerges from the experience a little bit stronger. Yeah, 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 that's right. So so that was you know the experience for the investor to have that he could share with his buddies and you know we ended up getting the pricing that we wanted. So uh-huh. it worked out in the end. So but uh, you really have to put in the time. Yeah. You have to and put the, in the effort, time effort. It's like physical effort. It like is there's a effort. reason why there's so many massage places everywhere in Shenzhen. It's because you need it after you've been working so hard like, all day. So hard in factories in the markets everywhere. Where you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it can be stressful. Yeah. It's incredible when you compare it to to what goes into a software startup, right? Where everything is modular. You're just like dialing up AWS servers without even calling anyone on the phone. It just right. or like sending an email. You just provision this stuff and right. you hook together a software startup out of all of these modules that are free or inexpensive and they work. And there's no human negotiation whatsoever. You can like, I mean, most software startups do involve human negotiation in the sales and marketing process. But it's conceivable that you would create a software startup without any. With hardware, 
it's just all this, yeah, the physical element of walking around to different factories and putting your thing on the table and like giving people a chance to walk away and then sort of playing hardball, negotiating on the price and then going through the the technical negotiation, which you guys must have done a lot of where, you know, the injection molding person sends it back and is like, oh, this this thing you want is going to be 40,000 extra dollars. Oh, yeah, that, that was rid- I said, no, that's ridiculous Yeah, because I know this other guy that can do it for 10. Why are you wanting to charge me, you know, the whole hand when you can just charge me a finger? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, um, no problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. okay, no problem. Yeah, you know the real pricing. Uh, well, you know, there's a saying, uh, hardware is for hard men and uh, software is for soft men. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. Yeah. I'm going to start using that one, though. Yeah. That's an awesome place to yeah. uh, to, to leave the listener. <laughs> hardware is for hard men. Software is for soft, soft men. men. That's right. So if the listeners want to find you and SurePod, uh, where do they go? They can go to julia-ko.com or they could simply email me at j-u-l-i-a-k-o-2014 at gmail.com or they can visit us in Mountain View. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julia. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. Thank you. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. If you liked this conversation you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference. For more on the Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Craner. And I'm John Bruner.